This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to Construction Law Today. Our guest is Robbie McPherson. Robbie is a lawyer at the Gibbons Law Firm in Newark, New Jersey. The subject of our discussion is the 100-year anniversary of the Sparron Doctrine. Welcome to our podcast, Robbie. Thanks for having me, Buzz. I'm excited to do this with you. It's really uh, nice for me to have you on our podcast today. You and I have known each other for probably decades now. Let's begin our discussion just briefly with a little summary of your law practice and your experience. Well, Buzz, I was luckily hired right out of law school to work for a construction contractor. I didn't know anything about construction law. In fact, I don't think I knew that it existed as a discipline, but I knew the family that owned the company. Uh, My practice has been 100% construction law since mix of transactional litigation work. In the early 90s, I added arbitration and mediation to what I do, and I've been doing it uh, happily ever since. Since 2008, I've been with Gibbons in their New Jersey office. Before that, I spent some time at Thalen and 23 years with Postner and Rubin in New York City. Robbie, let me ask you about a couple examples of the kinds of projects that you've worked on in your career. You know, Buzz, it's been everything from an army base on Sicily to a zoo on Staten Island. Uh, Very recently, through an organization called Building for Good, a referral service linking up construction lawyers to not-for-profits that need pro bono construction advice, I negotiated a design-build contract for the new Family Resource Associates headquarters in Red Bank, New Jersey. FRA helps children and their families with special needs, and that was a very, very rewarding experience. Well, I should probably also mention to our audience that in addition to that kind of project, you've been very active in a number of construction law groups. You've been the chair of the ABA Forum on Construction Law, and I know that you've taught construction law, and uh, you're also a fellow of the American College of Construction Lawyers. You've really been remarkably active uh, in those kinds of organizations. You know, Buzz, I have gotten back far more than I've invested in those organizations. In order to really learn construction law, you got to talk to other construction lawyers about it. And if you're going to be a construction lawyer, you need to understand the industry and there's no way, better way to learn that than getting uh, experience and participation through groups like the AGC. 
Well, that's a great introduction to our discussion today. Let's have a let's have a chat about the Spearin Doctrine. Now, I know, like perhaps most construction lawyers, that was a, a Spearin case was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court um, in 1918. That'd bring us up to our hundredth anniversary. So, let's start from the beginning. What was the case about, and why is the ruling important? Well, in 1905, George B. Spearin agreed to build a dry dock at the Brooklyn Navy Yard for the United States Navy. Spearin was to be paid about $757,000, which would equate to about $21 million today. Uh, Spearin, like most contractors, was required to build in accordance with detailed plans and specifications the Navy had prepared. Part of Spearin's work involved diverting a sewer line, which in its current location when he started work intersected the site of the proposed dry dock. Spearin relocated the sewer line as he was instructed to do and then began work on his dry dock. Unfortunately, about a year after the sewer line was relocated, while the dry dock was well underway in construction, almost about 50% done, there was a flood coupled with a high tide that backed up into the relocated sewer line and broke it, flooding the entire dry dock site. At that point in time, the Navy shut the job down, a lot of back and forth between Spearing and the Navy over what happened. Spearin took the position when the Navy told him to go back and reconstruct the sewer line that it was unsafe to do so and it needed to be redesigned. The Navy disagreed. After some more back and forth, the Navy terminated Spearin's contract and hired another contractor to complete the work. Spearin, at that point in time, was out over $100,000 or close to $2 million today and sued the government, and the government sued Spearin, saying that Spearin should pay the cost of the remedial work. Well, it's interesting because um, uh, although that case happened more than a century ago, a lot of the facts sound remarkably similar to the situations we deal with today. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it certainly is. Uh, maybe a, an unreasonable government and a contractor that's just trying to do his job and get paid. So what happened uh, when uh, Mr. Spearin uh, brought suit? Well, uh, Mr. Spearin prevailed. And the reason Mr. Spearin prevailed was that the court found that Spearin did exactly what the contract required him to do. He built the sewer strictly in accordance with the plans and specifications that were provided to him. Uh, the government appealed uh, to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court affirmed finding that Spearin's obligation was to build in accordance with the plans and specifications and announced in that what we now know as the Spearin Doctrine, which I think is is worthwhile quoting. It's interesting, uh, Robbie, isn't it? I I doubt that Mr. Spearin thought he would become a part of uh, construction law history when he undertook this, this project, but I guess, in fact, he has become so. Uh, he certainly has become so. And, you know, you don't normally think of the Supreme uh, Court when you think of construction cases, and um, you don't think of a construction case ever making it to the Supreme Court. I've never been there. 
but in fact, this is a garden variety construction dispute. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, the um, justice who issued the opinion. It was Justice Brandeis. And uh, I know there's some interesting history about his uh, take on the case and um, the way that he drafted the opinion. Well, Justice Brandeis uh, was born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1856, Harvard Law graduate. He spent most of his career practicing in Boston, was very, very successful. Uh, and it was there during his practice that he developed something that has been come to be known as the Brandeis Brief. And the Spear and Decision is a good example of the Brandeis Brief. And what it is, is Brandeis believed in a use of non-traditional and non-legal materials in his briefs. Uh, he believed that the law should accommodate changes in economic and science, and that factual accuracy was extremely important, as you can tell, with Spearin. Um, he relied heavily on facts, and, and those facts are set forth in some detail in Spearin. And um, his statements of the law were very clear and concise, and he didn't spend a lot of time relying on legal theories and logic. Which is an important lesson to construction lawyers with regard to the uh, crucial importance of developing uh, the facts of a case. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Brandeis is a very practical person. Um, you know, he, prior to being on the court, he was an advisor to Woodrow Wilson and FDR. He also had extracurricular activities, very active in the U.S. Zionist movement, um, just an all-around um, jurist and, and lawyer. In, in fact, he was the first Jewish member of the Supreme Court, as I recall. Uh, I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me. Well, one of the, the takeaways from the opinion is that um, uh, commentators have often referred to it as the kind of classic big company versus little guy sort of holding. Uh, do you agree with that? And what are the implications of that kind of interpretation? You know, Buzz, I, I think that characterization's a little overblown. And I think maybe it, it comes from the fact that Brandeis was, was known to be skeptical of, quote, big government, quote, big business. Uh, big business was obviously developing quickly at that time. Uh, but this decision, I don't think, is the big bad government versus a lowly contractor. Um, Spearin was no guy with a wheelbarrow. Remember, his contract was $757,000 in 1918, or $21 million today. Obviously, a sophisticated contractor handling large projects. So I, 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 don't, I don't buy into the... Uh, big company, little guy. So I, I think it's the Spearin decision is Brandeis holding the government to the benefit of their bargain. Well, let's... What Spearin agreed to do is to build the sewer the Navy told him to build. He did not agree to build a defect-free sewer. Well, let's, let's take that uh, point that you make and uh, talk about the application of the Spearin doctrine to private construction projects. You know, Buzz, um, there are cases that suggest that Spearin only applies to public projects. 
I don't agree with that. Um, I read those decisions as courts that don't like, for whatever reason, the Spear and Doctrine and how it applies, and perhaps um, they don't think it should apply that way or it should apply at all. Um, I've seen a similar argument made when you have cases addressing notice clauses. You, you've seen a clause. The contractor has to give the owner notice within 10 days of a delay or it waives its delay claim. There are judges and there are lawyers who argue that that's necessary in public contracts because the public fist needs to be protected from uh, extravagant waste of public funds. And so we've got to protect the government by these waiver clauses. And since we don't have that public policy needed private work, there's no need to enforce those clauses. I, I don't buy that. If, if a private owner negotiates a notice waiver clause, um, they're entitled to have it enforced and no less than if they were a public project. Well, let's bring the Spear and Doctrine a little bit into the real world and let's uh, use the example of a contractor's claim against the government. So I'm the contractor and I have a claim arising out of what I assert is a problem with the plans. What do I have to show in court? Buzz, it's actually very simple uh, proof. Number one, you need to prove that you complied with the specifications. Not material complied, comply with the specifications in all their respects. Number two, you need to show that the specifications were defective. And then number three, you have to show causation, that the defect you've proven exists actually caused the problem. In the Spearing case, the defect was that in the sewer to which the relocated sewer was attached, there was an undisclosed dam inside the sewer uh, that wasn't shown on the plans. Spearing obviously didn't know about it, and the allegation isn't the proof show that it was that dam that caused the overflow which burst the relocated sewer. We'll now take a short break from our interview and we'll be right back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. We're back with our interview with Robbie McPherson of the Gibbons Law Firm. Robbie, just before the break, we were talking about the claimant's responsibility in connection with bringing uh, the cause before court. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. Say I'm the government in a situation of defending a claim arising out of spear and principles. What are my defenses? Well, the, the owner's best defense is that the contractor deviated from the plans and specs and that had they not deviated, the problem wouldn't have occurred or existed. Give me an example um, of a situation where um, a government would prevent, uh, present those kinds of defenses, and, and what do they sound like? Well, let's say that the uh, plans and specifications called for a certain type of shoring. Let's make it even more sophisticated. Let's, let's say it called for jet grouting uh, to shore up a building, and the contractor decides that it could do it by underpinning because it was cheaper. 
and the, the building shifts, I think the contractor's is liable for the damages that occurred because it deviated from the plans and specifications. Robbie, another, we were talking um, during the break about contractual provisions that modify the obligations of the parties as announced in the Spearin case. Do you see those quite a bit? Oh, you do. You, you, you see owners try and shift onto the contractor the obligation to do a quality control check of the plans and specifications. And I, I think owners misunderstand what contractors are doing when they're looking at plans and specifications. Contractors assume that the plans and specifications are complete and accurate. After all, they're signed and sealed by a licensed design professional. The contractor's looking at those plans for two reasons. Number one, they want to make sure they understand them. And number two, they want to make sure they can build what the owner is asking for at the price they intend to bid. Tell me a little bit about what you see out there in the, the world of form uh, construction agreements like those from the AIA or from the uh, consensus docs. Do they, do they address uh, Spearing concepts? Uh, they do. Uh, both of those documents have clauses requiring the contractors to have examined the plans and specifications and also an obligation to report any errors they find. They are not obligated to report errors they should have found. It does which some owners ask for. Well, it, it does seem though, and and, and you maybe agree, maybe you wouldn't, that contractors, at least to a certain extent, are in a better position to see problems in the plans than an owner might be, especially when it's a contractor experienced with a particular type of construction. Uh, wouldn't you agree that it makes a little bit of sense to put that obligation on the most knowledgeable party? Well, I don't know that they are the most knowledgeable party. I think the most knowledgeable party is the person that actually prepared the plans and specifications and has the education, uh, training, and license that allows them to prepare such plans and specifications. Well, it's now been about 100 years, I guess 100 years uh, this year, in fact, uh, since Justice Brandeis uh, announced the Spearin Doctrine. Um, tell me where uh, the concept is today. Um, has it evolved? Uh, has it changed? You, you know, Buzz, I don't believe that the Spearin Doctrine has changed uh, or has evolved. As, in fact, the cases that uh, apply today are applying exactly what Justice Brandeis wrote. What has changed is the way construction is delivered. Brandeis was dealing with what we call a design-bid-build contract. The government designed it, Spearin bid on it, he was the low bidder and he was awarded the contract, and he built what was designed. Today we see a lot more design-build in which the contractor does both the design and the construction. Uh, and obviously in that situation, if there's a problem with the design, the contractor owns it, uh, whereas Spearin only owned the construction. He didn't own the design. We also see a lot more performance specifications. That's the situation where instead of saying, build me the uh, building with an HVAC system shown on the plans, it's build me a building and put in that building an HVAC system that will maintain my indoor temperatures within a certain range, regardless of the temperatures outdoors. 
In the in the final part of our discussion, I, I think it might be useful for our listeners to hear about some of your big picture ideas, and in particular what uh, uh, state and federal courts have decided in dealing with uh, cases where the Spirin Doctrine arises. Uh, let me give you an example. Can the Spirin Doctrine be effectively used both offensively and defensively? Well, Buzz, it's, it's like the old story. Uh, you know, there's a lawyer in town. He was the only lawyer in town, and he wasn't doing that well. It didn't have really much of a practice until the other lawyer showed up. And then he was doing just fine. I so, get yes, it can be used both ways. <laughs> I'm curious about a, a situation that, I, that um, sometimes I've come across in, in evaluating the application of the Spearn Doctrine, and... That is, what, what happens if a contractor deviates from the plans only with the best intentions, but without any authority? Well, that's the situation that, that the owner has an absolute defense. Because the contractor's obligation is to follow the plans and specifications. And in fact, the, the Spearin cases, Spearin itself, and the cases that predated Spearin and cases after that, make the point that the contractor is given detailed plans and specifications and is allowed no deviations. That is why the owner is responsible for any defects in those plans and specifications because the contractor has no right to deviate. But of course that brings up the flip side situation and and that is what if the plans are from the perspective of the contractor just obviously wrong? contractor just follow them and then assert the Spearin Doctrine? Oh, no, no, certainly not. If the contractor has knowledge of a defect, he knows it's in there, he can't take advantage of it. He has an obligation to report it to the owner, and that's the concept that is reflected in the industry documents, such as the AIA docs and the consensus docs. How about site investigations? That that sometimes leads to Spearin-related issues. It, it certainly does, Buzz. You know, but the thing about site inspections that you have to um, keep in mind is that the owner has had a lot more opportunity to do a site inspection and to gather information about the site while it determines what to do with its site. Is it going to build an office building? Is it going to build a munitions plant? Is it going to build a dry dock? It hires design professionals, they investigate the conditions, and they create the design. The contractor is a very limited time from when he is asked to bid on the work until his bid is due. And you can't have 10 contractors all out there with um, boring machines and drilling rigs trying to do investigations. I think a lot of practitioners, Rob, come up against the concepts of the Spearin Doctrine when they're looking at contract language in particular, that kind of language which attempts to shift um, the obligation for the quality of the plans from the architect to the owner. This was the issue we were just discussing. What kind of advice might you suggest to um, those lawyers representing contractors in terms of uh, dealing with and modifying that kind of language? Well, I, I think that you have to explain to the owner why you're modifying the language. 
And the explanation is, and the owner might not be aware of this, but they need to go back and talk to the design professional. But the principle of risk allocation that I think everybody accepts, everybody doesn't always apply it, but I think they all agree it's true, is that risk needs to be allocated to the party that is able to control that risk. Owners and design professionals can control against the risk of design defects. Contractors can control against the risk of improper workmanship. And that ought to be clear in every contract. And if it is, you're going to avoid most disputes. As so often, I guess, is the case, it's that communication of uh, a fair and reasonable balance of the risks in the construction process. Oh, I think it is. And I think, you know, as construction lawyers, sometimes we make mistakes. You'll send me a contract, and I'll mark it up and send it back to you. But probably what we should have done before we did that is have a discussion about the clause and why you wanted certain things in it and why I object. And nine out of ten times when you have that conversation, the negotiations go much better, and you end up with a much better contract document. Robbie, that's about all the time that we have today. What a pleasure it's been to um, have this discussion. Really appreciate uh, you coming on uh, the podcast. I'm Buzz, thank you very much for having me. It's another wonderful uh, thing the forum does for its members. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.